Good evening, everyone. <laughs> I'm very excited to be with all of you for the start of our fall season at the Poetry Project. And I'm especially honored that we're kicking off with a celebration for someone who so ecstatically encompasses the spirit of what we do here. Thank you to Belladonna Collaborative, Roya Marsh, Shelley Marlowe, and Tracy Morris for joining us, and congratulations to Pamela Sneed on an astonishing book. Before we get started with this evening's readings, I do want to share a few very brief updates from the project. We have a new issue of the Poetry Project newsletter with our complete reading and workshop schedule through new November, as well as a new poster for the season designed by Becca Good. I'd also like to mention that we have just a few seats left in some of our upcoming workshops. Poet Against Empire, a generative erasure workshop led by Candace Williams across five weeks starting in October, and then Abolitionist Poetics and the Practice of Dreaming, led by Jackie Wang on October 27th. I also want to share that over the coming year, we will be undertaking work to critically engage the history and future of the Poetry Project in this particular space. We would like to acknowledge that this venue is built upon unceded indigenous lands, specifically the territory of the Lenape people. We would like to acknowledge that there are dimensions of criminal justice reform, gentrification, diaspora, climate change, and more, all of which we are implicated in through our presence here. We are committed to an inclusive, continuous, and discourse-driven process of holding ourselves accountable to this, and will be sharing periodic updates in different ways throughout the year. We recognize the continual displacement and violence against Native people and people of color by the US and are aware that these kinds of acknowledgments can be misused as stand-ins for actual decolonization work, which is something for us to bear in mind as we go forward in the work. I want to extend thanks to Samantha Richardson for drafting pieces of the acknowledgement I've just read. We are very proud to be part of a community that has always always, always dedicated itself to reckoning and poetic engagement with some of our most complex imperatives. It is very fitting, given this, to have Pamela Sneed open our season with the launch of her memoir, Sweet Dreams. We are inspired by Pamela's conviction, the ambition of her art, her commitment as a leader and mentor, and most especially the vision in all of her work that a better world is not only possible, but essential. This whole book is an act of generosity. We will start this evening with readings from Roya Marsh, Shelley Marlowe, and Tracy Morris, and then Rachel Levitsky will introduce Pamela Sneed, whose reading will be followed by a reception. Roya Marsh is poet in residence with Urban Word NYC, and her work has been featured in Poetry Magazine, The Village Voice, The Root, Button Poetry, and the Breakbeat Poets Black Girl Magic Anthology, among other places. Shelley Marlowe is the author of Two Augusts in a Row in a Row, which has been published. Uh, yeah, we can applaud for each of the readers. <laughs> 
Shelley Marlowe is the author of Two Augusts in a Row in a Row, which has been published as both a novel and art edition and was recently awarded an Acker Award for avant-garde excellence in writing. And Tracy Morris is the author of seven books, most recently Hardcore Poems Perform, Poems of Mythos and Place. Among her numerous honors, Tracy is a 2018 Master Artist in Residence for the Atlantic Center for the Arts and the 2018 WPR Fellow at Harvard University. <laughs> and now please join me in welcoming our first reader, Roya Marsh. Hey y'all, how's it going? All right, all right, all right. Um, word, I'm super excited to be here. So this is phenomenal. Excited to read from it out loud, not to my cat, but to you all. <laughs> I wrote a paper about what I imagined black feminism to be. I had moved to a poor neighborhood, the projects in Harlem after the high rise that was too shocking. I had never experienced the dense poverty. I stayed with a black woman with three kids. It was a friend's mother from Northeastern. Every day there were smells of piss and feces in the hallway. There was a glass on the playground. I talked about black women who had to raise her children in poverty and endure these things. I talked about her youngest daughter, Naima, with long black braids and deep brown skin whom I'm often babysat, who was eight or nine and never allowed to play outdoors because it was too dangerous. I talked about myself, how walking amongst the idle boys in an isolated part of Manhattan en route to the subway at six foot two and a half inches with a shaved head was like walking a gauntlet. I also wore vintage and thrift store glamor influenced by my Boston days. Every morning, I was hazed by those idle young men with words like faggot, skinhead, dyke. I was never sure if those threats would end in violence. I can only imagine my determination and my style acted as some sort of bulletproof vest because I never changed to fit in. AIDS had just begun to emerge then. It was at the apartment in Harlem, I opened up the daily news and saw an ominous headline in black letters announcing a gay plague described as God's curse on homosexuals. They were closing bathhouses to stop men from having sex. At that time, I didn't recognize myself fully as a lesbian, but it was there with this new plague and the hatred of homosexuals hovering over us and in the background like fear. I never talked about it. Dage Loaf tweets, I'm not a dyke, hoes just love me. ASAP Rocky says he'll kiss a dyke chick and she'll like it. He'll fuck a dyke bitch if she likes dick. He's been fucking broads like he's been fucking bored. He'll turn a dyke bitch out and have her fucking boys. Kanye says he's heard to do anything for a Klondike. Well, 
He'll do anything for a Blondite. Nas says, it's only right that he uses mics and the rhymes that he writes are harder than dykes. The title of this poem is homophobia versus homophilia or how girls kissing girls became a fashionable thing. Lessons to the pretty boys with long hair and gold chains that rap about fucking lesbians. There are worse things than being homosexual, like not being homosexual. <laughs> Like believing your dick is hard enough to screw this brick wall into stilettos and a miniskirt. Or like believing that being gay is sexy and profitable because you're not. Or not understanding that your dick or any dick has nothing to do with my sex dyke. A noun. Definition. One. A long wall or embankment preventing flooding from the sea, too. A boundary of defense, meaning I am the levee, the ark, and you, sir, could not possibly handle all of this wetness for God. For God, for God so loved this girl, he gave his only begotten tongue. So, ASAP, get like me. Your girl probably wished that you could kiss like me, self-train in the game of such delicacies. So, nah, you would never lick her clit like me, question. When you fuck a dyke, which one of you is the daddy? Rhetorical. I once had a man tell me he did not respect me as a woman until I opened my mouth. Funny how being a woman and bending my knees are synonymous with opening my mouth. I tell him it is not his penile compulsion that compels my tongue to beat. It is the love of a woman, the body of a woman, and that body is mine. And it is not built for his male consumption, depletion, or rhyme scheme. It is built for nature, to nurture, and for the record. We all start out sucking titties for survival. Some of us are still surviving. Thank you so very much for allowing me to. I chose this excerpt because of the honesty and humor that is Pamela's. As an adult, I listen some, here, I need to stand back. Uh, let me move this. Uh, there, we there we go, okay, good, there we are. Huh. As an adult, I listen sometimes to the preachers because they remind me of my grandfather's church where I grew up. Over and over, I repeat, to myself, Michael Beckworth's phrase, in the beginning, to say we have control over our story from the start of our day. He also repeats God's biblical phrase, let there be light. And he means, as I learned in school from the feminists, consciousness. Let there be light, illumination, truth, consciousness. With all the predatory food shops and clothing stores in downtown Brooklyn, those that prey on young poor black kids, I repeat sometimes to my students what Dr. Beckworth says to remind them of purpose. You weren't put here to shop till you drop. Last week I was touched when Michael Beckworth said, 
our lives must be more than the corporations and companies using us up till, until we die. My favorite is from Reverend Zach a long time ago. Give away a dollar to someone in need or homeless and don't ask them what they do with it. It's none of your business. One of my students, a girl from Egypt, told me that this line really impacted her. She is now more generous. To show them I am not self-righteous and that I too struggle with compassion in this technological world, I say to them, there is a homeless man on my block, a black man whom I see every day. Every day he asks for a quarter, but something about him irritates me and he makes me feel like a Republican. I want to shout, get a job. They always laugh at this. I try to be human and funny. When I catch them texting in the classroom, which is often, I ask them coyly, oh, and are AT&T and Verizon giving out degrees now? The students laugh and respond, no. So I'm like, don't get played then. When I want to impart something serious to the students and need silence rather than tell each individually to be quiet, I imagine myself as a movie director and say, all right now, quiet on the set. Once I taught a group of adults, some I didn't think liked me much, but I had an occasion to see them all in an assembly. When I opened the door, a sea of smiles spread across the room, and they shouted excitedly, repeating my phrase, Professor Sneed, quiet on the set. <laughs> I have had some health issues. In this, I have noticed so many of my core needs are unmet, needs for love, companionship, to be listened to and honored and respected. As a child, I was not allowed to talk in my house. I was not allowed to express anything. I had no voice. There was no conversation about anything. I was with my stepmother often as my father worked. I was an avid reader. My favorite thing of all time was a Nancy Drew book. The series was about a young heroine who solved mysteries. There was a Nancy Drew on the front cover with a flashlight peering into a cave. They were 50 cents near the cash register. I asked for that book. I felt a pain in my stomach the way one hungers when weaning from drugs or yearns for a mother's love. My stepmother always refused. There was no one there to see I needed that book and how important it was. I remember telling a friend in my adult life about past friends and some terrible separations. I also told this friend about Ruthie, my first mother, and not being allowed to see her after the divorce. She said, your friends are your parents who didn't know how important it was for you to see your mother. Keep in mind, none of this is complaint. None of this is victimization. 
This is an attempt to put a story together. I am a survivor. I guess I'm developing a voice now that says you won't get it in life until you heal for yourself first. Right now, I feel as if a scab has fallen off and I'm speaking from a gaping red wound, raw and unhealed. One of the things that Pamela and I have in common is an interest in reinventing how to express the sacred. The Wind Blew Through Like a Chorus of Ghosts is about Sylvie in the year 2013, uh, my latest work, who discovers they had a past life as a witch who died in the year 1620 in Scotland as a teen. In this particular chapter, we are in Edinburgh on Halloween when a Buffy trope takes place where revelers turn into their costumes. Halloween in Edinburgh. Sylvie drew on mustaches and all of the sudden they became handsome men. If this could take hold for the day, then would others' costumes take hold too? Then there jumping ahead. Then there were the ghosts, the people who dressed like ghosts, either a lazy sheet with holes cut in them or they wore detailed Victorian ghost outfits. And there were the witch ghosts, those with a past life as a witch. All of the ghosts haunted and flew around the castle, the woods, the ships in the harbor, the fire eaters' performers, performances. Calliope, Sylvie's past life as a witch ghost, was a cartoon character who checked inside her cartoon underwear and she had black pointed Japanese ink drawn pubic hair and red crimson blood that increased on her cartoon white undies. Sylvie stared in the mirror and watched the scene roll by. Their past life as a witch, Calliope, was locked in a cave with fairies. They kept her company while she was afraid. Iron bars kept them in. The fairies were actually seven feet tall, but appeared small so as not to frighten them. Calliope vomited pearls, visible only to the fairies. The real sailors were forced to go to war and never came back except for a ghost ship in the North Sea Harbor. The cartoon mice visited her too. She didn't know what to think of them, but laughed at their jokes. She sat with ogres and elderly witch ghosts, just and poor Dutch Norwegian and elder, uh, Norwegian elders who sulked near her and became beautiful from her love. Their jokes made her giddy until she saw her own bloodied feet. She was hungry, hurt, and missed her grandma, who visited as a ghost, to say, I'm dead now, and we'll catch you on the other side. Mickey and Minnie were on the ground and ate from a tin container of old food. Grotesque elders shook but nearby. They tried to bake Minnie Mouse in a pie. The hooded person tied the rope, a thick sailor's rope, around her neck to strangle. After she died, she rose up like a cartoon character of a witch. 
She changed into many images of witches, green big face with warts and black hat, just a head made of cardboard, a cute witch on a broomstick in a black robe with an arch black cat on the back riding in the sky up through the clouds. Then more clouds, ultraviolet, turned into stone blue clouds that parted. A wild wind tunnel sound that was so loud and then utterly quiet except for humming and ringing, singing rings of light. Faint shadows of the angelic spheres, all that enveloped her. Fairies on horses of every color galloped in a V formation. They were surrounded by light that twinkled silver gray. Then meteor showers from a mica rock flew down from above them. Horse, take me up, the fairy queen takes me up to portals of light. Look up, Ophelia, dying of love. Big heart, true blue and pale rainbow portal like a volcano but from above. Calliope arrived and all the sparks and meteor showers turned into cartoon witches that tumbled down to the earth. Mother Shripton, the humorous witch Hazel, Samantha and Bewitched, Willow from Buffy, Wicked Witch of the West, East, North and South, all flew down like a volcanic eruption. Women unborn will bear the fruit of her pain. It was the birthday of the cartoon witch. Love messages from beyond echoed. We love you, la 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 la. We love you, la 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 la. Hi, Kyle. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, we well, can clap when I say yes. Um, great job, as always, Belladonna. And hooray, Pamela Smith. <laughs> In many ways, I am fortunate to have always had a strong sense of identity. As a poet, performer, professor, I am someone who leads, whom people look up to, emulate, compete with, steal from, and in more cases than care to report, tear down. Like recent victims of police brutality and heinous crimes enacted historically and presently against women, I have been viewed by some with fear and contempt. In the words of the late great poet Sekou Sundiata, it all depends on the skin, it all depends on the skin you're living in. <laughs> yeah, you wrote that. <laughs> Sometimes I laugh and enjoy myself as someone accused of practicing sorcery in an African village or in a not-so-funny scenario, accused and persecuted like witches in Salem, Massachusetts, as a six-foot-two-and-a-half dark black lesbian with a shaved head my identity provokes many reactions just by being in a room. I want to go back to the idea of being stolen from, as that's an ongoing part of my experience. 
My earliest sense of identity came from a black woman in Boston. She was dark-skinned with a shaved head, and during the summer months, she drove a Jeep convertible down Huntington Avenue, one of the most prominent avenues in Boston near Northeastern University. It was the 80s. I was best friends with talk show host Wendy Williams. We attended Northeastern together. I think I said Northwestern. Northeastern together. Northeastern University. You have to understand how conservative Boston was. It is a city famous for the Bunker Hill Monument, the statue of Paul Revere. It is also famous for being provincial with red cobblestone streets, row after row of brownstones, deep racial divisions, and the 70s housing scandal, busing scandals that attempted to desegregate white city schools with black kids from the inner city. It was ugly with white people with contorted faces who spat on black kids, carried signs and shouted, niggas go home. So you have to understand, a black woman with a shaved head driving down the most prominent avenue in Boston in a Jeep convertible with the top down was unheard of. I was 18 years old and saw her sometimes from the window of an apartment I lived in on Huntington Avenue. Even with my limited scope coming from the suburbs, she was an image of beauty and perfection to me. Wendy Williams and I met through a program in Northeastern for African-American students. It was a program created probably in the late 60s or 70s to aid in the retention of black students who didn't have great grades in high school. It was called Projective Ujima, named after a principle of Kwanzaa, collective work and responsibility. Most of the staff were women involved in, the civil, right, in civil rights, and they wore dashigis. The most prominent administrator was uh, Ver Verdea, Verdia, who saw I was open and spent a lot of time talking to me about black power. I became immersed in the institute. Wendy stayed clear of it. I didn't think I'd ever see a woman who, ever seen a woman, any woman who looked, uh, whoever looked like Wendy and spoke like her. She was golden colored brown, wore red, red lipstick with outlined lips. Her brown hair had blonde highlights. She was heavy set and big boned. She considered herself to be a valley girl or an African American princess. She was wealthy. In her dorm room, all of her accessories were pink her favorite color at the time. There were a few homes and there were a few uh, boxes of Godier that were black and white striped. He was her favorite designer and she was obsessed with his cologne. She only wore labels and Izod shirts with bright, in bright colors like pink. She only drank orange crushed soda from a can and she only sipped it through a straw. That was Wendy. I suppose we both uh, connected because we were outsiders. We were both studying communications. Wendy went to radio. I can say she was pretty much the same person then as she is now. Frank, brash, smart, outspoken. I followed Wendy everywhere. She was very into men, I wasn't. Wendy really liked a guy from a black fraternity. Fraternities were popular on campus. He was a Q. 
The Qs were the bad guy fraternity on campus. They were jocks. Many got in on sports scholarships and had limited abilities to read and write. Their colors were purple and gold. Having opportunity to watch these guys in a step show was truly exhilarating. How they went from lumbering to agile, dancers playing ancient rhythms on their bodies. One night, I went with Wendy to visit the Q fraternity house. She wanted to hook up with one of her favorite Qs. I ended up in a separate room with some guy I didn't like much and was kind of forced to have sex with. It was a compromising situation and I don't think I've ever mentioned it until now. I also sometimes hung out with my younger cousin from the suburbs. She visited me on campus. She, Wendy, and I were a trio. We want, once went to visit Wendy's parents' house in New, in New Jersey. It was a mansion. I don't think I'd ever encountered such wealth. I met her dad, a handsome, light-skinned man. Uh, we met in his study. It was a library full of books against the wall. He's a writer, Wendy told us. The way she said, writer, it was full of reverence and respect. He might have been the first sign of things to come for me. During that visit, Wendy, my cousin, and I went to NYC and snuck into an infamous club, the Paradise Garage. <laughs> it requ required us getting fake IDs because you had to be a member uh, and you had to be uh, at least 21. My younger cousin, Lena, and I had, much to drink for, uh, had too much to drink from the punch bowl, infinite, infamously filled with tabs of acid and red fruit crunch. She passed out near the bathroom, and my life as a young person depended on reviving her. If I, we didn't, we were in big trouble. I finally did. Wendy and I um, united in that we were wild cards. In Boston, we went to parties. I started uh, taking her to gay parties. Before I was, uh, was really, and really ready and willing to face it, she declared, oh my God, Pam, you're gonna be a lesbian. She also proceeded to out me to Northeastern's black basketball team when we were, uh, whom we were both friends with. She went around campus telling them, you know, Pam's a lesbian. <laughs> she and I separated over that. I um, never followed her career uh, and fame in radio so much, but every so often after Northeastern in New York, friends would call me and say, Wendy Williams talked about you on the radio today. Wendy would say, the only lesbian I know is Pamela Sneed. <laughs> In the early 2000s, I ran into Wendy. She was working still at WBLS. I was bartending. She came in and we talked. She was outrageous. First thing she said was, hey Pam, you wanna see my liposuction? And pulled her shirt moderately to show the orange peel skin. She went on, my parents wanted me to marry an A-lister Ivy League man, but this is the kind of man, type of man I like. And she pulled out a photo of a man that looked to me like a mugshot. I smiled politely. I told her I was writing a book. In response, she said, anyone can write a book. At the end of our conversation, she said, I don't have many women friends. And in a moment, 
as if all the years between us hadn't passed. As if perhaps beneath fame there might be loneliness, she asked. Would you like to have dinner with me sometime, Pam? I'm not sure if I answered. I understand many years ago she wrote a tell-all about her origins. She said in college she had a roommate that was a lesbian. I imagine the lesbian alluded to was me. <clears throat> I have not read this poem in over a dozen years. I kind of forgot about it. It's called Step. It's for some Q dogs I met in Tampa. <laughs> that is so crazy. Yo left, yo left, yo left, yo left, yo left, right, step. Yo left, did a left, yeah, did a left, yo did a left, yeah, did a left, yo 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 left, 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 yo left, right, step to the beat, to the beat, to the beat, to the beat, to the black, but 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 the black, to the beat, downside, polyrhythmic strut, just intricate, chut, just change, chut, change, change, chut, change, 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 shout suits and pounds, Greek blood, let's bring in African ground, hit it with a bang, hit, hit it with a bang, hit, hit it with a bang or band, Timberland high tap translate. Zanian bootstraps, no taps, blood, warrior souls, goal to communicate middle, pass, age, roll, call, fall, and roll, 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 call, roll, 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 call, fall in line, show times are times on attention. Dare to mention that intrinsic, dare to mention that, dare to mention that synchronicity at ease, don't be DC by simplicity. Collective spirit bigger than the whole, bro, whole, bro, whole, bro, goals, goals. Bros got soul and bros to the sis and see the bros and sis got to clear up. Bros and sis got to clear up. Bros and sis got to clear up. Bros and sis click click their heels and click 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 her. Click 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 her. Click 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 click. Boys and click 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 click. Boys and sis click click to the lips appeal to the groups can end go go to the lips click to the lips click click then go home. Hi, everyone. So good to see you. You're the best audience ever. Um, so I am, I'm Rachel Levitsky, um, and I um, had this idea. I came up through ACT UP and through all the activism of the 70s and 80s and 90s, early 90s. And then I was a poet, suddenly, in, in the mid-90s, and I had this idea to create this reading series for someone who wrote work like me, but was also a feminist, and that started Belladonna. And we'll turn 20 years this January, or whatever, 1990. Um, and it's really an amazing, an amazing journey, and it's amazing to have this book come at this time. I want to first thank the people at the Poetry Project, Kyle DeCoyen, Nicole Wallace, Laura Hendrickson, and all the people that are doing all the work to make this place, to keep this place alive after 50 years, more and more vibrant and better all the time. Um, and I want to thank uh, Greg Bordowitz, who wrote the beautiful introduction for Pamela's book, 
and Tracy Morris and Karen Finley and Dorothy Allison for their amazing blurbs and Yanni for the design. So just to acknowledge all the labor that went into making this book. And I just want to especially acknowledge Rachel Wilson who has heroically taken on the helm of Belladonna for the past year with such a plum and grace and care and beauty. And she's over there being wonderful in the middle of this aisle. Say hi, Rachel. I love her. <laughs> and to James Loop for joining us as Rachel's studio assistant, also really an amazing person. So it keeps going. Um, but one more thing before I read my introduction for the amazing Pamela Sneed. Um, I want to um, tell you that if any of you have any desire to write about or to teach or to review the book for any reason, find one of us that you think might be able to give you a copy, and we will, okay? This is very important labor that is to be done um, that we need your help with. Okay, that's enough of the extra textual stuff. It's a deep pleasure to be here before you holding this delicate work of great intensity as an object we've all been waiting impatiently for. A beginning, I will imagine, to a series of prose works by the performer, poet, teacher, activist, and artist, amazing artist, Pamela Sneed. In fact, the book covers, book's cover graces a collage by her, tender and dramatically vibrant. One aspect supports the other. The book, too, folds tenderly and vibrant. As Greg Bordowitz notes in his gorgeous introduction, Quote, Sweet Dreams is a manifold work of exquisite origami. And he wrote that without seeing Pamela's cover collage. But I mention the collage not only because Pamela's art should be credited, I mention it because like this work, simultaneously prose poem, sequence, a novella, memoir, a manifesto, handbook for our now and future feat of being free under the duress of real life as we live it, also expertly, it also expertly and magically scores all the ideological, the basic, the luminous, the popular, the inanimate, the intimate, and the broadcast in a manner of collage, a seamless visual, a seamless visual score, as Greg again notes, an organizing chronicle of the senses. In a flash, we see Wendy Williams in her pink eyesod shirt, drinking nothing but orange crush, sipping it through a straw, studying communications. Sweet Dream scores the constant figuring out how to, of how to appear to oneself free and loved against the fact of ever being seen and projected upon as too big, too bold, too black, too gay, too much. This author knows that the phobogenetic fact of her life connects her to every act of violence that black and brown bodies experience, that it's not ever separate, and that the ultimate aim is control. And this is a book, refined and tender, that is also big and uncontainable, and in which no gesture, no person, no detail, no feeling is too small to matter. In particular, and I want to honor this part, this is a book that unflinchingly witnesses not only a complex poetic experience of being alive and free when your presence has been programmed to be a problem. It also is a testimony to the ongoing costs and exactions of that life. The great activist and poet Melanie K. Cantrowitz died last month. At her memorial, Barbara Smith, the black feminist writer, thinker, founder of Kitchen Table Press, and member of the Kambahi River Collective, spoke about the deep and scarring intersectional practice of many feminists of her generation. Before it was called intersectional, as quickly be, as you can see here, right, right now, um, as, um, as quickly becoming an erasure of history. What also makes me happy to have this amazing book in the world is that it is a living witness to one of those histories, and I will imagine that by Pamela, it will keep getting written. Here's Pamela Sneed. Thank you. 
going to try to take it in. I have issues with that. <laughs> um, thank you, everybody. Um, I have all these like thank yous, but I want to read a poem first. And, and thank you for coming out. Thank you for your support. I mean, my deepest fear is that, you know, I'll write this stuff and there won't be an audience for it or that I'll be standing here and I'll just, you know, talking to myself. And, um, and that's not true. Um, so, um, okay, I'll do my thank yous now. So, Roya, you know, thank you. Um, Shelly, Tracy, Rachel Wilson, Rachel Levitsky, uh, Greg Bordowitz. Greg is like the first person that I shared this literature with and he really gave me the courage. He said yes. And, um, and so I'm very grateful to him for hearing me. Um, and so, and I want to welcome Kyle to the Poetry Project. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I have so many students here and so many friends and like there's so many people that I love in this room and I thank you. I cannot believe that Steve Cannon is here. <laughs> the legend of the Lower East Side and Bob Holman who brought poetry to us. You know, this is amazing. Um, so thank you everybody. Thank you for my friends who've supported me. Um, I don't know, it's very moving. I already cried, so I'm sure I'll cry again. I want to read a lot of stuff. There are only three men in my life I've ever wanted dead. The man who orchestrated the Rwandan massacre, who was found dead in a ditch, Jeffrey Dahmer, who ate the flesh of black boys. He was found in a jail, stuffed in a broom closet, and I smile thinking of the prisoners who orchestrated that hit. The last man was my father's friend who tried to molest me. I might have been six, seven, or nine. He gave me rides home and asked me to kiss and touch him. I was terrified. Don't tell your father, he'd say. I still remember his stinking whiskey breath. I might have been nine or 11 when he was found dead, stabbed in an alley, and I remember feeling grateful, though no one taught me, though I can't remember who taught me at how such a young age I could feel this way. But I was happy when I heard the news, and every time someone says, me too, there's a knot in my stomach. Every time I see them splashed across the television, I've learned to be suspicious of media. Me too is just another episode of reality television. Who gets voted off the island? The thousandth episode of People's Court. The perps more monstrous, and every time the guillotine goes down, I get this feeling of satisfaction. But I can't believe that this is justice. I can't believe I'm participating, and a part of me is raising my hand like it goes up involuntarily. It testifies against my wishes. It takes on this voice, first whispering, and then it shouts, me too. And all of this brings me to the ex, her staring at me through the glass window of a restaurant, trying to see if I were broken or aged. She bowed her head like she was some sort of now faux spiritual Buddha, wishing me well, sending love, light, and peace. 
though she was the darkest character I'd met, and I could never say to her or the friends who protected her, me too, it was quite a, uh, it was quite a reinvention how she went away and reinvented herself. And I remember saying no when she continued, and she goes around campaigning for women's rights. Everyone believes her, and I got what all Cassandra's got, shunned, excommunicated by those who don't even know me. I remember having an argument with her, and another woman who's known me forever walked up to her and said, I love you. And so to all of them, I raise my hand, my voice, and I shout, me too. to say, I envy Beyonce, that she gets to show up after the fact in New Orleans with her hair and makeup did, going down on a police car, that she epitomizes black cool with the voiceover from Messy Maya and Big Frida, the queen of sissy bounce. I envy Lemonade when she got to have Serena twerking a few frames before the mothers of sons lost to police violence and no one called her out on that. I envy her Black Panther and feminist garb and formation that she is a declared feminist and it's like being the first wife or something. The one who bore the kids whose body got stretched out didn't care for herself, got tired and too caught up, disillusioned, had needs the one who got left for a glamorous other, because real life activism isn't that glam. There's lots of loss and invisibility, and you'll, just, and you'll hear things that's just incre incredulous, and they'll say things like, she's so beautiful. Admiring her hair and her makeup, and they'll pay anything to hear her sing and relish in the Bay and Jay soap opera and talk about how abused Bay is while there are still so many real black women standing right next to you who are also beautiful whose lives got used up paving the way and you wouldn't pay $10 or a dime to hear. The people of New Orleans are still struggling, lost their homes, their city. I always teach the work of Sophia Bakari, a black panther who died in prison at 53 years old, advocating for the rights of political prisoners. It's a simple book, but it always calls out to me. I must have done something that touched her. Because I ran into her sometime in between classes and she said, just so you know, I wrote a letter to the chair and I told them, if you don't come back to this school, I don't either. I was surprised by her student loyalty. Others had written other things in other schools, one who said I gave them much needed skills, but this one stood out also. I tried to remember how and when it happened when I sat in her studio with her and taught her the keys to poetry, which is image. Describe your paintings to me as if I cannot see. White bandages, gauze, she said, red. What color red, I asked. You're a painter. What are the colors? Red is never just red. 
And I felt like the devoted teacher who taught blind and mute Helen Keller to read and write as she took her hands in hers and led them over the braille until Helen could shape the sounds. And that is what poetry is like. Another time, I read a poem to her that I'd written about my mother. We both confided, the student and I, about abuse. She never talked about it with anyone, she said, her mother's schizophrenia. Maybe it was these moments that bonded us, or the fact that I understood the spiritual nature about her work. It's important, I said. I'm not sure what touched her, but I know I had. When attending a student party, she was holding a cup full of orange liquid and fell onto me slightly drunk and shouted, I love you, Pamela. <laughs> I love you too, I said. And maybe this is part two, but I'm aware of being in a studio and the bravery it takes to be an artist and what it's like to cross mountains, continents, deserts, to defy families and societal rules, just to put paint on walls or to make a video, to go into debt, to face a great unknown just because your hands, heart yearn to make things. It's like oxygen. You couldn't go on breathing if you couldn't express. Because of my size, color, class. I was never allowed to be little. And by little, I mean innocent. By little, I mean allowed to play, make mistakes. If anything occurred in whatever setting, I was always blamed. I was mistaken constantly for being older than I was. At six, when my stepmother came, she refused to allow me alone time with my father. If a moment occurred, she asked, what were you doing with him? As if at six, I were molesting my father. I was once caught through an open bathrobe trying to see my father's penis. My stepmother never forgot. You were trying to look at him. I was not given toys, books, anything, stuffed animals, bows, ribbon, anything that may be attached to a little girl. I was also my mother's sounding board for her adult problems with my dad, constantly instructed to call the police when he hit her. The only thing that my parents could figure out to do together for some small infraction was to give me punishment. Two weeks. So I never knew the nurturance that girls got. My adult life has duplicated this, always to blame, outside, refusing to see my little girl. On occasion, my mother sent me to the store to get candy, things that she liked, fireballs, Reese's peanut butter cups, Kit Kat bars, black licorice, sometimes red, which I liked, Twizzlers. I remember once chewing a pack of red Twizzlers as an adult, the red stem hung out of my mouth. A friend at the time exclaimed, you're such a little girl, Pamela. And once I was with a woman, someone looked on and said, oh my God, Pamela's little girl is out. In relationships too, I was never the little girl. In fact, in most of them, I rescued radically immature women. I was their mother caretaker, the one with all the responsibility. And of course, when it ended, I was always to blame. Everything to me lies around class, race, gender lines, even in so-called evolved communities, even with people of color. I know no one would treat a white-skinned woman or a man the way that I've been treated. In colleges where I teach, I'm always aware of the hierarchy, people screaming about diversity. I moan, I complain how the na AIDS narrative only belongs to men. They never ask women, black women, as if AIDS didn't happen to us, our fathers, 
brothers, sons, nephews, cousins, acquaintances. The black gay boys in the choir became our, disappeared. I remember a pair of black gay men who were spiritual would act as ministers and buried the dead black boys families wouldn't recognize. They who showed up as priests and gave last rites. And one of the women, a mother nursing a grown son who's returned to a baby ravaged by AIDS. And me being young myself going into sick wards like leper colonies and seeing those abandoned by society, I never forgot. Even my era did not allow me to be little, innocent. A threat if I spoke up, a competitor for middle-class white girls who had the world handed to them and resented you for surviving, thriving against all odds. At the end, of every Holocaust film I've seen, and there are not that many. They show real life survivors and the lines are, never again. And some of us, like me, stare into those films down the long tunnels of history, wondering how it could have happened ever at all, that a leader and his minions could be so toxic and poisonous that you would turn against your neighbors, that you could be so oblivious, brainwashed, scared, desperate to be superior or to survive that you'd do anything? Almost. They say never again. But it is, again, as I look at the deportations, roundups, I'm reminded of Idi Amin when he cast out for foreigners and Forrest Whitaker in the film The Last King of Scotland when he played him. And to see it is, again, at rallies, at protests, they show the code hangers and crude instruments women were forced to use in back alley abortions. We say never again, but taking away women's choices and Planned Parenthood, it is again. Today started out in an argument with a so-called fan who didn't understand why I mentioned race so much in my new book, Sweet Dreams. And that white man is not the first a black woman asked me to. I wanted to scream, hello. <laughs> Haven't you seen the news? Didn't you see what happened to Stephon Clark? Unarmed and shot in the back six times by police, and no one even cares what happens to women, black lesbians, or lesbians of color. There's no public outcry. A student once wrote to me in an academic paper that a parent forced her to stop playing sports because they said sports made her more of a dyke. It murdered my student inside because she was an athlete. Yeah, so the white guy I argued with about my books that he was just giving me some good advice from his experience as an, as an empath. I said. <laughs> I said, I don't need your advice. I have reasons for talking about race and gender in the interpersonal. He said he was just trying to help me. I'll offer this as a non sequitur. Winnie Mandela died a few weeks ago. She had great impact on me. 
I read she was nobility, but then, of course, the difference between her and, say, how Princess Diana was treated. Everyone accepted and loved Diana's silent, passive status. She was allowed to be gorgeous. No one ever associated with her that dirty colonial stain. There are moments that stand out to me in that recent Winnie Mandela documentary when she buried her face in her hands and she screamed out, as I have so many times, I've been betrayed. The other moment was when she said she was the only ANC member brought to TRC and made to testify, and also that Nelson Mandela forgave a nation, but he never forgave her. And I think what was done to Winnie is also done to other black women and working artists, black women fighting to give language resistance, but it only matters if a celebrity says or does it. At Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, after you've passed the door of no return, there is a plaque donated to the castle by the black tribal elders. It reads, may we never sell ourselves into slavery again. But it is. I don't know if I should try this one yet. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna read something else and then I'll read it. Let me, let me try, okay. There is a quote attached to Harriet Tubman, which they say now she didn't say. If you hear dogs, keep going. If you see torches in the woods and they're shouting after you, keep going. It's only then that you'll get to taste freedom. I imagine that adrenaline rush, that fear, that shout, as she led her passengers through the woods with no mission too dangerous for her to achieve. I think of my own pursuits as a teacher with no case either too big or too small. I often think of starting a reality show called Student Makeover. How they come in unprepared and start to find their voice over the semester. Everything about them completely changes. I also often think about the teacher who taught a blind Helen Keller to read and write would not give up. They called her the miracle worker. I saw a boy just recently in the studio it was like something in a movie, but literally there was a dark shadow in the room. I hadn't seen a cloud like that, such a dark presence in a room since the 90s, in hospital wards where gay men were dying of AIDS and death hovered. So when the boy said he was depressed, I already knew and I went to work. Like something out of that show, Kitchen Nightmares, and people have given up hope. I was that one woman crew with a mop and a pail, only I used words, inspiration, and insight. Things started to come clear, and then I gave him the Audrey Lord, the transformation of silence into language and action. I made him read the first two paragraphs out loud. This moves me, he said. And literally, as in a movie, that cloud, that presence lifted. I saw it clear. There was light. In one hour, he looked like an entirely different person. 
I have worked with people, the ones that they say in gospel that the doctors gave up on. I remember a boy who came to me once in class. He was from the, the hood. I guess his eyelids were heavy, weren't open. He handed me in a, an assignment in pencil. I won't accept this, I said. Of course, a fight ensued, but I'm glad my instinct told me to challenge him. I saw him start to care. His appearance and everything changed. He always came to hug me in the hallway, and he said, Professor Sneed. This happened over and over. Just like Harriet, the only reward was to see a free soul. And I'm writing this today because it seems that I have received my greatest mission, the most treacherous and the most difficult, the most insane like something out of that film, Mission Impossible, before Tom Cruise got really creepy. <laughs> this is your mission. Should you choose to accept it? And the mission stated to me was that I must rescue myself. It's me who needs the mop and the pail and to scrub clean the dark walls and to remove that presence in my own life. It's me who needs the patience and the love and the day-to-day -day work. It was a literary agent who said to me after reading my memoir, you've given so much, but the person most in need was, is you. And so now the challenge is to give up lifelong patterns and to turn on the lights in my own life. This is something, something brand new I'm going to try. I never read it in public, not ever. I'm not sure why, but it's taken me forever to write this poem. And I hope to remember all the pieces. But I've developed a new condition, one that's come from age. I can no longer take the shit that I once did. And there's a part of my condition that comes from gentrification and cell phone use. Living amidst tech zombies and their general fear and hatred of people of color. My condition is called sidewalk rage kind of like road rage, but it comes when I'm walking down the street and there's some millennial who's just moved into the neighborhood who thinks it's theirs, like a grown-ass white girl who in broad daylight feels a dark presence walking behind her. It's me, minding my own business, and she gets so panicked and paralyzed, she stops walking and holds her purse. And with my new condition, I yell, if you don't want to live around black people, get the fuck out of the neighborhood. She's shocked. <laughs> or in another scenario, you see random white women on their phone, standing in a doorway, completely blocking it, because you know only they exist. And you're like, hello. Hello. 
Yes, all these years I thought I was still a small town girl, and then suddenly with my sidewalk rage, I'm a bona fide New Yorker, like the ones you see on bicycles banging on the hood of a taxi cab that tries to <laughs> cut them off. My person with sidewalk rage is a character of their own. Where once I was silent, recently I confronted a man who was blocking my path, crossing the street. He had his head down and he almost rammed into me and I sucked my teeth really loud and I shouted, hello! Hello! <laughs> he was so angry I confronted him, he yelled, suck my dick. <laughs> I started to yell something profane, but I stopped myself. And then I was in the subway going downstairs and a white man rammed in, into me on the phone. My sidewalk rage kicked in and I thought for a moment to sneak behind him and kick him down the stairs. <laughs> That's my sidewalk rage. But I stopped myself. I don't know who this person is in me who could never speak up for herself, was always soft and vulnerable who's been, at various times, pickpocketed, blasphemed, body slammed, ransacked, ridiculed, who now has a voice, who now lets her rage show, who couldn't express herself, has now become all angles and sharp edges. It is courageous. I'm doing that thing now my mother, my stepmother could not do. She tried. She practiced. I will never forget the blue suitcase, a square that looked almost like an attache case, only larger. It was always the same song and dance routine whenever she fought with my father. She'd pull the blue suitcase out of her closet. She'd pack the case, leaving it to sit by the door. She'd scream to my father, I'm leaving you. And then the bullet, I'm also taking your daughter. You're coming with me, right? I really had no choice. I knew she wouldn't leave and I'd be stuck with her wrath. I wanted her to go. I wanted to stay with my father, but I couldn't say that. My mother tried, but she never made it past the stairwell. Maybe once she made it down the stairs and he dragged her back. Call the police, she commanded to my six-year-old self. Maybe once or twice she made it down to the parking lot and into the car, the emerald green Impala. Maybe he clung to the side of the car door and threatened. As Toni Morrison once described in the novel about slavery, Beloved, besides the main character, Seth, there was a girl so traumatized by her sister's ghost, a baby whose throat was slit by her mother, she could never get past the yard. I imagine how many slaves tried, as opposed to got away. How many made it down to the garden or the potato patch with thoughts and sights on freedom but turned back for fear? How many times or how many as I got trapped, could never get their foot loose? My mother practiced, but she could never escape. I see the end results, a depression that can't be overcome, mental illness left untreated that eats away her brain. She believes that there are bugs, a man who comes to the house and steals from her. She buys poison and puts it down daily. The worst part is that through abuse, she's been made into some man's raggedy doll. 
So I'm doing now what my mother could not do, though it's late. Though I should have done it long ago, moving away from abuse, emptying, going back to the beginning, it's frightening to start over and to reshape my own core. But what do I have? What I have, what my mother and I share, is an indomitable spirit. And just when you think it's impossible, an obstacle cannot be overcome, there is me. There is my mother. As in a medical drama, when you think that the patient has lost too much blood, suffered too many wounds, there is me. There is my mother. It's like an action drama where the hero is fleeing the villain, clinging for life from a rooftop, awaiting rescue. And there is me. There is my mother. I'm going to read what, I've never read that in public before. So. I'm working. <laughs> Say what you want about my mother. I know. Her cruelty knew no bounds, neglect, never a warm hug, kind word. Every year when school came fall, I looked at the flyers of back-to-school clothes, nothing. I wore rags, hand-me-downs. As soon as I worked, she made me pay rent, and that was the message engraved into me. Instead of being taught responsibility, I was taught that I owed her rent, the ground that I stood on. I had no rights. My father's neglect the patches put over his eyes not to see, never a book, nothing. She suffered from mental illness, was selfish, through blinds, through stories I get glimpses. Say what you want, but she is the greatest fighter. She is going now. She cobbles out a life from the women she watches on housewife shows, their competition. My mother buys a wreath, my neighbor buys a wreath, my mother buys a bigger one. She tells my father when I visit, strike up the barbecue. She buys corn, pretends it's a party. I see that she's lost weight this visit, the depression she believes that there is a man coming to destroy things and that there are bugs. She constantly buys poison. I know I can't talk to her about depression, the drugs, so I say as gently as I can, keep your spirits up. Then you're going to gain back the weight. On the morning that I am leaving, she dresses up in nice clothes and a pair of coral earrings I gave her. She said she'd been skipping meals, but on the morning that I left, perhaps just as a child to show me, she piled on a plate of scrambled eggs with ketchup, and she ate.
One morning now, wheat and sweet creams, how are we doing for time? And these are two excerpts from Sweet Dreams. There are several black women who've come up to me recently at readings by referral or randomly they cry. They ask me to teach them. They say they just need to know that I exist. Sometimes I tell my students, I'm Harriet Tubman, and I don't like losing passengers. They laugh. Sometimes I think at the beginning of every semester, I am Noah leading the ark, and my job is to carry them through the storm, deliver them to another shore safely. It's a game of survivor. And if they ever go out, as I did on a rooftop many years ago in a drug-fueled haze on the Lower East Side, trying to decide whether or not to live, I pray that something I said to them in class will be the message in that little black box like the one that's kept on planes in terms of emergency, the one that's in every soul. As an adult, I have an idea to write a children's book about a hero called poetry. I want to teach children how in dire times poetry can save them and they can create her. In my little black box, it was always poetry who saved me. It was poetry who showed up on the rooftop, loaded me onto her wings when I was in a drug-fueled haze on the Lower East Side, and she told me, don't jump. You have so many reasons to live. Poetry who, like Harriet Tubman, shouted to her passengers on the Underground Railroad, keep going! <laughs> More often these days, there are occasions when I get such a strong sense of how powerful I am. I feel tall the full height of six foot two and a half looming large. My power comes to me like a wind, a gust, a deep breath released, it lifts me up. I felt it most recently in a classroom during a writing class. I was talking to my students about overcoming fear. I could feel and see students laugh and be serious and completely follow me. I was making a joke about struggling with fear. I told them about a character inside of me which should be a monologue in a stand-up routine. I call this character my crack addict. I'm not for shaming drug addicts. Everyone in America is one. I always say if we want a revolution in this country, take away sugar and coffee, there would be an immediate uprising. <laughs> I firmly believe US attitudes towards addicts need to change. There are times when I say to my students, the only people on television who visibly have no rights left are addicts. They are policed, murdered, generally anything can happen to them. This discussion comes in the context of teaching human rights and Kafka's metamorphosis. Who are the bugs of society, I ask? Anyway, as I explain to these current students in a writing class, I have a character inside of me and I never know when they or she will appear. Usually it's during a theater audition. Everything is going well until the crack addict appears. She hates auditions, can't take cues, can't memorize, and says all the wrong things. She also makes sudden appearances when I'm on a date. The students laugh when I tell them this and they identify. Laughter has a way of making fear 
less powerful. There's another point I wanted to make that I was saving for my memoir titled My Soul Went With Her, which I pretty much completed in its first or second incarnation. The memoir is titled after Winnie Mandela's memoir about Nelson Mandela, written during the height of the apartheid era, when he went underground, was jailed, incarcerated, and she says, part of my soul went with him. My memoir is about freedom fighters and runaway slaves and the fable of those who could fly. My memoir ends in Brooklyn when I am walking past the now defunct Mediba restaurant with my white South African friend who has two mixed race sons. We are talking about South Africa, which is where I met her. She says, my sons are now part of the generation called Born Freeze. I never heard this information. It warned me to know that after so much struggle and pain, there could be a new generation called Born Freeze. Hearing this, after all the years that I have fought and felt grounded, I lift up like Martin Luther King and DiCaprio's character on a mountaintop, like the girl woman on a rooftop in trouble who was loaded onto the wings of and rescued by a hero called poetry, I start to fly and I can see everything. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Keep up the good fight. Keep up the good fight. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for supporting the work. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. All right.